If Reality Check Radio enriches your day and life, support us to keep bringing you the content, voices, perspectives, and dose of reality you won't get anywhere else. Visit www.realitycheck.radio forward slash donate. Welcome back to The Dialogue with Diwa DeBoer on Reality Check Radio. You can text us on 2057 or email your feedback to inbox at realitycheck.radio. And I'm joined here by Joe Trinder, and I'll uh, let him introduce himself, and then we'll get into the questions. Oh, kia ora, Diwa. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. So my name's Joe Trinder. I'm woke elite Māori of the highest order, sheeple, leftard, commie, and other insults. And George Soros pays me a small fortune to express these views. And that's your, your Twitter bio. Is there anything else you want to tell us about organizations that you're involved in maybe and some kind of background beyond just being part of the Maori elite? Um, yeah, so not really involved in any organizations at the moment. Just just um, we've got a think tank, the Maori elite. Um, that's going to try and contest the, the Atlas Network. Right, so... You're up against the Atlas Network that's, mm-hmm. uh, that David Seymour is involved in, the grand, the grand Conspiracy, and they're putting forward a treaty principles bill, which I've seen you argue basically they're going to redefine the treaty, right? So the argument that, that is coming from Maori is that they shouldn't be allowed to just say, this is what the treaty means. You actually want input or you, know, you have a view of what the treaty means. So can you give us a little bit of an overview of that? Well, I think when you think of the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi, you've got to take it from the context of what Aotearoa was like in 1840. So there's about 100,000 Māori in the land. They control this land. They have sovereignty. They are the law of the land. And there's probably about maybe 2,000 British tourists. They don't consider themselves New Zealanders at all. They consider themselves British subjects. And so... When Hobson turns up, he's making an agreement with two parties, the British royal family and the chiefs and tribes. So it's not it's not race-based privilege, <laughs> is what some people claim. It's an agreement between between the United Tribes and and also the British royal family. And then when we get into what I guess the articles themselves say and what some you know disagreements about what the treaty might say. In the first article, we basically have a statement that the the government of New Zealand will be given to the, the Queen, to her governor and so on, her government, which is eventually became the New Zealand government. Is that contested? Do you disagree that you know, there, there are obviously people like to argue about what does the English say, what what's written in Te Reo or and so on. But I think the general, there seems to be a general agreement that at least the government of New Zealand is as a legitimate authority over all, all people in New Zealand, over the affairs of the whole country. Is that something you agree with? So the, um, going back to 1840, there are nine treaty documents, and they're just not all the Treaty of Waitangi, uh, the Treaty of, say, Manukau, Tafia. And so of the nine different treaty articles, there is only one that is written in English. And this one that was signed by about 36 chiefs or something, 33, mm-hmm. um, offers offers sovereignty to Queen Victoria. The other ones, what they do that are in Te Reo Māori, they offer kawanatanga, which is the right to govern. It's not sovereignty. Mm-hmm. So if you were to look at it in like a realistic way, 
and you've got these chiefs and they're signing it, then they're not going to be signing a document that gives away sovereignty and all of their power away to to a civilization. They're not going to give the sovereignty away of their civilization away at all. That's just it's really unrealistic that that scenario happened or even that there's no record of Hobson explaining that to anyone or any of the signatories of the Treaty of Waitangi. I was reading in William Williams' diary, essentially, where he was explaining to his bishop later on, I think five or six years later, he was being asked, did you explain to the chiefs what they were signing? What was in the treaty? Did you lay this out to them? And he said very specifically, he said, yes, I, I explained to them what was in the treaty and they all understood it. And he says specifically, and he's not speaking about sovereignty in here, but he's saying he's specifically saying he explained about the governor would be governing over all of New Zealand, the establishment of what would be an authority over the top of the chiefs. They understood that. And then if we get to 20 years after the treaty, say the Kohimaramara conference, again, we see these chiefs who are there say, yes, the queen is the head of New Zealand. Some of them use the term sovereignty, others don't. But the general idea being that they understand that there is a, a higher level of authority. And that seems to be something that is well understood at that point by the chiefs at the time. Yeah, so there's a there's a problem with the Kohimarama conference is that it is held by Governor Gore Brown. The the Rangatira there are not kind of the top tier Rangatira. And a lot of the kōrero that's there is is not recorded of the individual rangatira. It's basically Governor Gore Brown, and he is he's dictating the terms of what the situation is, and and so I think that there, that was kind of a shambolic hui, the Kohimarama conference, and the fact that you're coming up to about the Three years before the invasion of the Waikato, tensions are rising. The colonists are wanting desperately to take land all through South Auckland and into the Waikato and take it for themselves. So this is on the verge of mass land confiscation and the alienation of Māori land. Mm-hmm. So I don't hold a lot of hope that there was a lot of reality happening in the Kohimarama conference. Yeah. But when when war did break out, there were many tribes who did side with the crown, with the colonists, and I think there is you know, general. It was accepted by, especially by the missionaries who were in the Waikato at the time, that they that the government was acting wrongly. Right, the government was trying to uh, elevate tensions, that it was breaching its obligations. Right, but the eventual war that did happen resulted in in a defeat for. Maori and you know the ones who were fighting against the crown, they were well, effectively conquered, right? So they, in your own, I guess in their in their own traditions and so on, war was very frequent. If you went to war and you lost, then you were conquered by the enemy. Is that something that's accepted, or is it is it rejected because they see that as a basically a betrayal that they were attacked? Yeah, there were there were multiple chiefs that went to went to war on the side of the British. They fought along the British, they were paid soldiers, and some of them were even officers that could give orders 
orders to European infantrymen, Urupata Wahawa. Yeah, no, there's no denial that there that there were multiple iwi that split in half and ended up in civil war, like Napui or Natipuro, and one side was on the side of the of the British Empire and the other side was on the side of the Kingitanga. It's it's no, it's not in dispute. So there are obviously some people who deny that the New Zealand government did anything wrong, but I'm <laughs> putting that aside. I disagree with those people as well. How do we move past that then? How do we get to the 21st century and get to a understanding of how New Zealand society is supposed to work and specifically like what is wrong, I guess, with the proposed treaty principles that David Seymour wants to put forward? Is it just that he's excluding any mention of Maori, any any mention of iwi or hapu from his treaty principles? Or is it is is there you have a very fundamental disagreement with the idea that he sort of laid down that each we should have one principle to represent each of the three articles and say the New Zealand government has a right to govern all of New Zealand. We're, you know, recognize absolute chieftainship for all New Zealanders. That seems to be the contentious part because that's obviously not really what the treaty meant at the time. And then, you know, the third article and the third principle saying that all New Zealanders actually have the same rights. Is there is it is there a disagreement with the substance of those articles beyond the erasure of, of Maori? Like if they included, say, Article 2 said, hey, we recognize that we have the absolute chieftainship over their property as well as individuals as, alongside. Is it the erasure of a collective recognition that you're upset by or are you upset by the whole thing? So I spoke to uh, Professor Margaret Mutu about this and she explained it to me really well is what the situation is with David Seymour's interpretation of the principles of the Treaty of Waitangi is he's taking individual sentences and he's taking them out of context. So if you were to take that last sentence in Article 3 and you're not putting it in context with Article 1 that it's specifically directed at the chiefs and tribes, the entire treaty is directed at the chiefs and tribes. It's not directed at British New Zealanders of the 21st century. So the beef that I have with Seymour's principles of the Treaty of Waitangi is that what he's doing is he's trying to in, trying to turn it into a universal suffrage document like the Magna Carta or the United States Declaration of Independence. It's not. What the Treaty of Waitangi is actually about, it's about the preservation of Indigenous rights for the Polynesian people of Aotearoa who, who are Māori. And the reason why the colonial office was actually trying to negotiate these sets of this agreement with, with the chiefs and tribes was because they could see how devastating the British Empire was on Indigenous people all throughout the empire. It was, it was at war with Aboriginal people. It was wiping out um, thousands of people across the Indian subcontinent. North America, Native people were, getting, were just getting eradicated. So by the time that 1840 had come, they realised that the colonial office couldn't keep on going through, through with this. It needed to try and form a treaty based on Indigenous rights. Mm-hmm. And I think earlier on I referred to the translator of the treaty as William Williams, which was actually Henry Williams. And something, while I was reading his notes, he actually does refer to the treaty as the Magna Carta of 
the people of New Zealand, the Aborigines of New Zealand. So that was something he really did have in mind, that it would be like a, a Magna Carta document. But when I was looking, if you look back at the Magna Carta and the US Constitution and so on, they aren't really universal documents when they're written. The Magna Carta is really an agreement between the king and the barons and the bishops, and it sort of over the centuries became recognized as a basis for individual rights. It became, it, it was taken up as a universal document. And similarly to the US Constitution, very famously likes to talk big about everybody having rights, but it really was about white men having rights. It basically allowed slavery to continue at the time, and there was no universal suffrage in it. But it, look, people today, everyone in America can look back at the Constitution and say, yeah, it's, it applies to me, even though at the time it didn't. People can look back at the Magna Carta and say, this can apply to me as well. So is there, do you not see a future where anybody in New Zealand could look back at the Treaty of Waitangi and say, well, this can also be you know, we need, we, this is an important document about rights, yes, for Māori, but can actually be applied or should be applied to everyone. Yeah, well, it's really difficult for Māori to accept that. There's 66,000 um, million hectares of land in this country, and probably about 60 million of it's been confiscated off Māori. And that's through warfare, uh, legislative theft, and it's, it's policies like the New Zealand Settlements Act, the Public Works Act, and even low-level borough councillors were capable of alienating vast acres of, of Māori land. And the thing is, is that the Treaty of Waitangi has basically been ignored for 150 years. And then finally, we start to acknowledge it with the last Labour government, and then all of a sudden... There's people who are complaining that they feel that they're becoming that they're becoming second second class citizens, and it's not the case. That I think as a nation, all New Zealanders actually need to look at honouring the Treaty of Waitangi, and there will not be any disadvantage for other New Zealanders. And I think that's what the fear is: is they're really worried that they're going to be missing out on something that the Maldives are going to be getting and no one else is going to be getting. It, it's not the case. It's what, what people like myself are trying to practice as a form of civil rights called indigenous rights. We're not trying to get, we're not trying to bleed the taxpayer or trying to swindle people or grift is what the accusations are. It's genuinely we want to practice mana motahake, where we get to, where we get for Māori to make decisions for Māori, as opposed to colonial New Zealand making decisions for Māori. And to expand on that a little bit, I guess one of the points of conflict has happened around water, and the claim say Māori own the water, or they're trying to take over the water. I guess. From what you're describing here, it seems to be, can we have a situation where in a more local setting, you have control over the water in, in, a, you know, in a geographic area that is still mostly owned by Maori? Or is there a really, I guess, the problem that people who are listening to this are thinking, things like three governance, things like co-governance, sorry, three waters and co-governance, they're thinking Maori are taking all the water and they're going to be in control of it, and then we don't have any input into what happens with the water, right? Then, then people feel like they're missing out because so you're saying, okay, all the water in the, in in all of New Zealand belongs to Maori. 
So I think there's a lot of chicken little going on here that the sky is going to fall in. For Māori, they were actually promised undisturbed estates, forests and fisheries. And so in that is waterways, water, um, any any kind of area that you can fish, and that will be remain undisturbed. It was what was agreed upon. Now, there's, this is the difference between colonial society and indigenous society, is that Māori have a mentality towards water of Manakitanga, where we are the where the guardians of this 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 what we call tonga or treasure of water. We don't have Maori don't have a mentality of exploiting it, bottling it, and selling it off overseas. They actually want to protect these waterways and turn them back into fisheries. And if you were to look at all of the lakes and rivers across the North Island, they're all contaminated due mm-hmm. to commercialization of the dairy industry. Intensive dairy, intensive dairy industry has absolutely contaminated most of the waterways and rivers across the North Island. What I think the problem is here is that commercial interests want to contest the idea that Māori will have a say in what happens in the preservation of waterways and, and water and that that there'll, there'll be a compromise in democracy. But honestly, it was what was agreed upon before there was democracy in this land. It, mm. So I guess that leads to the concern that people have and the pushback that you, you will get and, and are getting is then if you say, well, commercial interests are not, the most important thing and the changes are going to be commercially negative, then you make it into a situation where people start leaving or giving up on farming or fleeing the country, right? And this has happened in other places that have have decolonized. They've suffered massive economic collapse, basically. People fleeing the country, a, a vicious cycle where everybody ends up worse off because of the of the drastic changes that have taken place. And similarly when you say, well, you know, these the treaty was agreed before there was democracy in New Zealand, which is true, but we have a system of democracy now. And if you aren't able to reconcile those two things, then or you or people feel like you're going to take away their democracy, where well, they see that as a declaration of war, right? Okay, you're going to take our democracy away. We're, we'll no longer get a democratic say. I don't see a situation where you can bring people along with you to agree to what you're proposing. Well, if you put it this way, say we take modern-day Britain, and they have a class of entitlement over there of a certain family that doesn't have to pay taxes, is the head of state, and they're born into that into that race-based privilege. And it's the, probably the biggest form of race-based privilege on the planet. And then they have a house in their parliament called the House of Lords, and they actually have – they can – decline legislation that's coming from the House of Commons, and they also are not democratically elected into those roles. But when Māori on the other side of the planet asked to have an agreement that was agreed upon at the founding of this nation, where in reality Māori should be 100% doing the decision-making on water, the fact that they're just offering to share it because that was agreed on 
undisturbed estates, forests and fisheries. There's no other way to interpret that. If there's a mountain there, Māori own, own that. If there's a river there, there's a beach there, Māori own that. Unless you've come along and specifically confiscated it or you have brought that, that, that piece of landscape, then, um, then Māori don't have a say on it. But, but, so the treaty does specifically have a, you know, a, a clause about selling those things to the, to the government at the time or that the government would have the right of preemption, which was you know, later given up from the, from the treaty. But the, the treaty does, it did include a mechanism for things to be sold. So is, the, is there a big dispute then over what's been sold, what hasn't been sold? Obviously, the Waitangi Tribunal has dealt with a lot of claims and there are you know, different views on what was confiscated, what was legally purchased, what was taken in war. At what point do you say, okay, I'm, I'm living here in my house. You can say, well, okay, I'll, you know, that was stolen land that's going to take it back. There have been cases, for instance, I think we're over the positive resolution, like a national park, maybe is a good example where it still is recognized as being owned by the local iwi and also owned, you know, part of a public space for all New Zealanders. I, I believe that's the resolution for national park. I could be wrong. Or is that all in dispute to you? Do you think is all land, all purchases, everything is suspect, everything could be litigated? No, I mean, it, I think Māori and iwi leaders are quite realistic about it. If people have private land and they have homes on that land, then that there should go through a process of redress. And it has, it has through the Waitangi Tribunal where, where, um, where, that's kind of starting to get resolved. But what you're talking about with uh, Dockland and National Parks is co-governance. And co-governance was actually brought in by the national government as a form of power sharing because through through redress, et cetera, they found out that Māori weren't so bad. They weren't the boogeyman that they were thinking of and they weren't going to fleece everything. Māori had that kind of guardianship mentality where they want to preserve the land and and do the best for our for our native forests and wildlife and yeah. I guess if you run into into problems there with we'll say an area is closed off or some water is mismanaged right now. You know, if if the beaches are polluted in Auckland, which many of them are, it's the council's fault. It's effectively nobody's fault, right? The government can do whatever it wants. But if Maori are governing these assets, well, then people are going to have fingers to point and say, rather than it being, oh, well, it's just a bureaucracy. If the government thinks, oh, look, it's the, it's that iwi, they've stuffed it up. Uh, people like to point fingers as, are we not just going to be creating more problems? Yeah, well. That's gonna. That's inevitability. Is um, is that there's pollution and and there's some organisation that to blame. Um, that will happen. I don't think so. That that iwi will kind of deny it if they are at fault. I think they. But what they would they often do is if there is a situation where there's mass pollution. They'll put on it what's called arahui, where they ask the public just to stay away from the area until until the arahui is lifted. One of the accusations that's, that's been thrown at members of the government uh, since 
it's been said that we have the most number of people of Maori descent in, in the government, in the cabinet, but the accusation thrown from the opposition is that they're plastic Maori, they're not authentic. So what makes somebody an authentic Maori and a non-authentic Maori? Well, if, like, if you take people like Casey Costello, who I think is quite colonised, she was the leader of Hobson's Pledge, I don't think so that she is there to advocate on behalf of Te Ao Māori. I think that she's there to advocate on behalf of elderly British New Zealanders who are inclined to vote for New Zealand first. So you've kind of got two kind of mentality in there. You've got those who are prepared like Willie Jackson and Bawari Waititi who are there to fight for Indigenous rights, which is a form of civil rights. And then you have people like Casey Costello and and Nicole McKee who are there and they stand opposed to Indigenous rights. So I just think that it's two ideologies in there of people who have Māori genetics but have a different take on it. So you see, basically, you think people need to actually embrace their culture, their heritage specifically to be... Authentic, like it's not just, it's not really just a genetic thing. The genetic part is not as relevant as being culturally immersed in a certain mindset and, and identifying in a certain way. Well, in my view, I think that it's patriotic to want to honour Te Tiriti o Waitangi. I think that it's the founding document of our nation, and I think if you oppose it, I think you're being unpatriotic, regardless of your ancestry or whakapapa. And I think that if you fight for it and fight for Indigenous rights, I think you're a patriot and um, and I think you're a great New Zealander. <laughs> All right, we'll see what the listeners of the show think about that. Uh, you can text your thoughts to 2057 and email your feedback and your angry letters to inbox at realitycheck.radio. We've got uh, Joe Trinder here, member of the self-proclaimed Maori elite, and we're getting close to wrapping this up, but I've got a few more questions for you. Or more recently on the show, I've had conversations with people who have come, who have either been, say, just I guess specifically. Recently, I spoke to somebody from South Africa, an Afrikaner, a minority there, and talking about solutions and the struggles that they're having. And their focus is very much on building solutions for their people and their identity that are separate from the state. They don't want to rely on the state. They've given up sort of, okay, we're not going to control the whole country. We're a minority. We just want to be able to live in our own areas with our own culture and preserve that in, in that way. I also spoke with somebody from Europe who pointed out that Europe also has many European countries having their constitutions recognition for what they call historic minority. So smaller groups of Europeans within countries who you know, get some of their own recognition in terms of their own language, their own schooling, some of their own culture, sometimes even provincial control, local control over the area that they live in within the country. And the approach that does, you know, from what you've said here, that doesn't really seem to be a pro an approach that's interesting or is going to be pursued by Maori. It really is something you're interested in at a high level. Or are there groups within Maoridom who are trying to do this local, small focus to say the government is not when you know we're never going to take over the country, as it were, we're never going to get what we really want, and we're just going to focus on our own, our own people in our own little area. Are you talking about liberalism? We're not talking about liberalism here. No, no, I'm talking about people building 
cultural, ethnic communities in a, in a small geographic location. So that they can govern that place however they want, kind of an autonomy, like an autonomous city or a, an autonomous region within a particular country. Does, does that make sense to you? Have you heard about yeah. that, that um, general idea? So we have a word for that. It's um, manamotahaki or kind of self-determination. And I think that it is, um, I think that it's a brilliant idea. I think that's the strengthening of democracy in reality where individual interest groups or ethnicities form their own self-determination. Because put it this way, had Adolf Hitler had gone back to Austria and he had tried to become the, the Chancellor of Austria, the Austrians wouldn't have taken over Europe. But when you get big, large nations like Germany that managed to pull together a whole lot of smaller ethnicities and form big nations, then they become power blocks. And then they can start to take over Europe and they can invade Russia and start world wars. If you expand, oh, we need more space and more for all of our people and we keep expanding our territory. Precisely. But if you, if you break up a society into different little hegemonies, and they all have self-determination, it's harder to start a big war. Absolutely. I, I would like to explore this idea with you a little bit more in, in the future. I think it's, it's a really interesting concept to go into. But that's, I guess, uh, going to, I'm going to leave that for another time, I think, because it is quite an elaborate subject, and we'll just leave it here. I thank you very much for having joined me to talk about the the treaty principles, your view on the Treaty of Waitangi and how it should be honoured, also describing a little bit about what you know, decolonisation might look like and, and co-governance. So thank you very much for coming on RCR, and I hope that we can have another conversation about this in the future if the, uh, the listeners are interested to know more. Kia ora. Thanks, Duba. All right, all listeners, please stay tuned. We will be right back after this break. Thank you for tuning in to RCR Reality Check Radio. If you like what you're listening to, just like what you're listening to. Either way, we want to hear from you. Get in touch with us now. You can text us with your message to 2057. That's 2057. Or email us at inbox at realitycheck.radio. We would love to hear from you. So connect with us today.